Hey all, welcome to Dudes of Kung Fu. This episode, we have David Peterson. And if you've been doing Wing Chun for more than 10 minutes, you know who David Peterson is. And what was really cool about him in this episode was, you know, we could have just like interviewed him, but no, that's not what he wanted. That's not what like David Peterson's about. He wanted to just kind of like sit down at the table and be one of the dudes. And it was so cool. To like meet one of your heroes, and he just did not disappoint. So we, we talk about uh, the overthinking in the martial arts. We talk about a lot of good talk about footwork and um, answering questions from you guys. And it's just amazing. And David Peterson was fantastic. So listen up and listen to what he has to say. Dudes of Kung Fu. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 11 of Dudes of Kung Fu. Outstanding. Alex got that right because he's the one that makes all the mistakes in his job. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome everybody to uh, episode 11. We have quite the episode ready for you guys and we have a surprise guest which we're going to tell you about in a second. Um, we're really excited, kind of... I don't know. It's almost like it's as if Alex was meeting the toad all over again. You know, we all have our heroes in life, and, uh, you know, Alex has the toad in me. It's going to be like a Justin Bieber episode. So how was your week, Alex? I was pretty good. Um, I am uh, was in L.A. before our live podcast, and now I'm in, uh, I'm in Miami, uh, actually getting a bit of a vacation. But I'm still working every day, so I, I can never actually really take a vacation, I guess, is the, the whole point. One of our favorite uh, jobs here at the Dudes of Kung Fu podcast is we play the game, Where in the World is Alex Richter? <laughs> and so this week it's in Miami. Um, last week's episode was the live broadcast, and we had... A phenomenal time. I think that was one of my favorite uh, podcasts so far. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, it was great. My students uh, were really happy to meet you and, and feel the energy of uh, of the podcast live. You know, um, I, I think next time we need to mic up the audience so that you can hear them laughing. And, and because, like, there was a lot of feedback from the audience that you couldn't hear on the podcast. It was, uh, right. it was really a lot of fun. We should, we should definitely do that again sometime. Okay, if you had a guess... In a two-hour period, were more curse words ever said in your school before in, in its existence? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, well. Sometimes there are movie rehearsals and things like that in in my school, so I, you know, I'm not always there for those things. But I, probably uh, our <laughs> podcast would be a candidate for the most amount of swear words in the shortest amount of time ever in in, in my school. <laughs> That's pretty fun. Well, tonight on today on the podcast, tonight, today, this morning, whatever. Uh, depends on where you are in the world, because one of the people on the podcast is actually coming to us from Malaysia. If you don't, if you've been doing Wing Chun for more than fifteen minutes, you've heard of David Peterson, and he is the special guest. And we want to welcome David to the podcast. Thank you, gentlemen. Nice to be here. This is a this is a great day for me. Everybody that listens to the podcast knows I'm a huge fan of David. I've been listening, reading his works for the longest time. And um, I was finally able to scrape up enough money to pay him to come on here. <laughs> I'm only kidding. I <laughs> <laughs> really appreciate you coming on, David. Can you tell That's the folks a, a little? Can you tell the folks a little bit about yourself for the six people that never heard of you? Oh, basically, <laughs> I've been involved in the martial arts now for coming up 43 years. Began as a teenager back in the early 70s. Uh, was lucky enough to travel to Hong Kong in 1983 and meet my my uh, teacher, Siva Wong Sun uh, who's very well known in the Wing Chun world by most people who practice Wing Chun. And uh, 
I ended up uh, moving from Australia to Malaysia and I'm running a school here and uh, Wing Chun is my, my daily life. That, that's amazing. That's amazing. Um, I, you know, I, I've heard about Wong Chun Long for so long and, uh, and, and you, and it's just when he ran his schools, like, uh, you know, we're going to get into, uh, well, you know, I was going to ask you about Wong Chun Long schools, but you know what, we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, one of the things we want to get out. Can, can, I, can I mention something? So, uh, um, David and I have a mutual friend in Bay Logan, and every time I uh, every time I go to Hong Kong and, and meet Bay Logan, and like I'll bring some of my students, and he will always tell the same David Peterson story, which I've heard like five times already. Uh, every time I bring a bunch of students, he says, you know, uh, when David Peterson had a school, I guess your previous school was in Australia. Am I correct? That's right. Yes, yeah, right. Melbourne. Yeah, and, and then he said, you know, your, your old school used to be kind of very hidden, like you had to go down this alleyway and go to the back door. And, you know, people over there liked that because it was very secret and, and special. And that's kind of how, how they, they like to have their kung fu. But he came to Malaysia and did the same thing. And it was kind of it wasn't the same response in terms of getting people to come. So then you had to put this big sign <laughs> on, on, on the top of your school so that everyone would see you, uh, which is funny because, you know, uh, Bay always says kind of, you know, what a, a, a very kind of common and cool person you are not not the the most likely person to have like a huge king kong sized banner of themselves on the side of a building and and then he always says you know there's there's just a few things you can see from space one is the great wall and the other one is dave peterson's uh, sign for his wing chun school <laughs> uh, so he's, he's still telling that story is he <laughs> yes and, and every time cause I'll, I'll bring new students and then he'll always you know he's like oh well you know your sifu's sign in new york isn't nearly as big as this guy in malay and then he'll always he'll always tell that so i've heard that story about five times already yeah <laughs> uh, well i guess the difference was when we we're in melbourne the it was it's very expensive to own or even lease a place to teach so you end up up a back alley somewhere because that's just the way it is sure Whereas here in malaysia with the costs of, of renting a lot cheaper i was lucky enough to find something right on a main road and the students all said you know i've got to put up a big sign and one right. of the guys is a cut he's a cartoonist and an artist and he created this picture, so they all said, yeah, that one's got to go up on the roof, and that's it. That's, that's awesome. awesome. <laughs> I want to have one on my car. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could do that in New York, but they're like they're very uh, tight about the signage we're allowed to put on those old buildings. But that'd be great to have like a King Kong size you know, Wing Chun. So when I go to Hong Kong, I'm always jealous of uh, Sifu Wan Kam Leung. He has, the, he has one of the best signs. It literally yeah. goes almost entirely over Nathan Road. And I just like this I, as a martial arts uh, school owner, I dream of having a sign that epic. But we're just we're restricted to doing things like yeah. that in New York, unfortunately. Well, you got to understand, Bay does exaggerate a little bit. The sign's not quite as big as King Kong, but it's... it's... <laughs> I'm, I'm using Bay's words, sorry, because I've heard the story more times from him than I've actually seen the sign. <laughs> no, no problem. It sounds like Alex is trying to set up a... Uh, what's the right word? A BMO? We're going to have you and Bay Logan fight. But... <laughs> so uh, the, the first topic for this week's podcast is... Overthinking or not thinking enough in the martial arts. One of the um, one of the criticisms criticisms we hear of uh, martial artists is often like, "Oh, he's overthinking things," and then conversely, some people say, "Well, he's not thinking enough." Um, you know, I heard someone once ask me, "Is uh, we in a danger of turning Wing Chun or Jeet Kune Do into Tai Chi, which is the most overthought of art in the world?" Well, at least from what I'm told. 
What do you guys think? Uh, do we overthink or not think enough? Well, let's uh, let's hear from our guests first on that one. Well, I guess that there are some people who certainly do overthink and they, they get themselves into a really tight little corner because they think things beyond the point of reality. And that is a big problem in the martial arts. And I think it happens a lot if the only thing that you know about your martial arts is everything that's practiced in the safety of the of the gun or the dojo or, or wherever you practice. And if you don't actually step back and look at what you're doing outside the box, maybe you will get trapped into this position where you get the, the classic situation, oh, if you do that, I'll do this. Oh, no, but if you do that, I'll do this. And it goes backwards and forwards. And as my sifu used to say, it's like going round and round a bull's horn. You just end up getting nowhere. Yeah, you know, um, I always looked at JKD. By the way, folks, for you guys listening, with Alex Richter on the podcast and David Peterson on the podcast, I'm going to keep my comments to Jake and Doe this week. Because <laughs> there's just, you know what, there's just no way I can compete with this. So um, in Jake and Doe, I always refer to it as a thinking man's art. I, uh, I, I do think you need to, it, it does require thought. I think um, one of the problems is with JKD people is they confuse thinking and idolization. So instead of being um, instead of being thoughtful and pragmatic about like strategy, sit there and say, okay, I have this this uh, series of strategy and, uh, and tactics, and how can I best use it in regards to uh, my opponent's reactions and habits and things to that effect. They worry too much about a picture that they see of Bruce Lee taken in 1969 versus a picture of Bruce Lee taken in 1967, and the angle of his lead foot in the picture from 69 is different from the one in 1967. So now they they'll they create this timeline in their head. And I mean, I've heard guys. I'm I'm using this as an example on purpose because it was literally an argument I had with somebody once, where they said they 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 changed the way that they have their foot in their ready stance because of a later picture of Bruce Lee and his foot was kept in a different position. To me, that's an example of overthinking. It's, um, it's bordering on the insane. But when you, but it does require some thought in that, like, you know, we, we, we talk about JKD, the, the idea of uh, using distance and timing and rhythm and, and, and strategy and understanding the difference between uh, progressive indirect attack and, and, and uh, attack by drawing. That this does require thought. That you have to sit down and sit sit there and pretend like you're listening to your wife when she's talking to you, and in actuality you're thinking about, okay, how can I employ this? And then in when you're training is when you you, you try it out. And if you get punched in the mouth, well, you got to think about it some more. But it does require some thought, but not, you know, not obsession. I guess that's the right word, right? It requires thought, but not obsession. What do you think, Alex? Well, I mean, it, I, I guess it also depends on what kind of things you're thinking about. Like, you know, you can you can think about the martial practice. You can think about uh, uh, what your training session was like and whether, you know, what you learned today you'd be able to apply. Or you can spend all the time wondering why Grandmaster Yip Man, you know, was facing one way in a photo instead of another way in a photo. And how come this guy says you should do it this way and this guy says you should do it that way? And, you know, I, I, I think it depends on what you, you spend your, your precious time thinking about um, and there, there are definitely conversations at least within Wing Chun um, that I find are, are, are so ridiculous um, that I, I can't believe people actually spend a lot of time kind of uh, um, talking about these things and when, when 
they're they're clearly missing the whole point. You know, that's I think one of the reasons why I always gravitated towards um, towards David's writings um, because kind of within the the whole Wing Chun community, you have certain conversations that kind of tend to go nowhere and kind of tend to miss the point. Um, but you know, from reading David's books and 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 also the articles that he's written over the years, um, I always felt that you know at least there's somebody in Wing Chun who's actually talking about something that that is is not only um, relevant but also clearly from one of the most qualified sources in Wing Chun too. So um, I think uh, you know it's it's not wrong to think about stuff. It's not wrong to to analyze what you're doing. It's just a matter of what you're actually spending your time thinking about and analyzing. Mm. And I think that's what makes a difference. Yeah, I, I find that for for us speaking from someone in the Wong Sun Wing Chun family, our teacher was someone who influenced us to always look first at the practicality of what you're doing. If it works, then it's something worthwhile. If it doesn't work, it's not. So you find out straight away by testing. You must test. You don't argue about the angle. You find out which way works for you. The concept matters more than the way it looks. Because in the end, if it doesn't work, what's the point? Sure. That's an interesting point. When, when you look at someone doing Wong, uh, Wong Shang Long Wing Chun. Can you, I, I, let me rephrase that. When you look at someone doing Wing Chun, oftentimes you can tell what lineage they are just by the way they move. You know, with uh, Wong Shang Long Wing Chun, you can always, I can always tell, oh, that guy does that lineage just from the way they do Chi Sao. And I, I wonder... If that has to do with the mindset of the instructor, or as opposed to the the way lineage is taught, so what I mean, like what you just said about you know looking for the concept as opposed to looking to jam something in there that doesn't belong just because my lineage does it. Mm. You know, um, yeah. It's just, uh, and I think one of the, also one of the things that my sifu says to me, Steve Golden, JKD, for, for years ago, literally from the first day I met him, twenty odd years ago well Sean you have to remember that everything you're trying to do to your opponent he's trying to do to you mm. and so many people forget that that you know oh they're going to go out there and I'm going to try this and I'm going to try that well he's trying stuff on you also so you have to become familiar with the way people think as opposed to just un- un- trying to understand the way your body moves you have to understand dynamics of movement you know that one of the problems in martial arts is that, at least that I've that I've experienced, is that people try to understand just what they do. This works for me, so I'm going to only use this, as opposed to understanding the dynamics of movement, so that I have to understand what works against me. Mm. As much as I have to know what works for me, what works against me. Now maybe I can't do the things that would work against me. Like if they held up an order of French fries, that's going to distract me, you know. <laughs> but you know, like there's things in the martial arts that I can't do that work against me. I have to at least be able to recognize what's going on, and that falls into the whole understanding the dynamics of movement as opposed to just understanding the way I move. You know, I think, and I think that's where really thought, you know, giving thought to the martial arts applies. That um, worrying about the minutia of someone, what angle their stance is at, or bullshit, or crap like that. It's. Listen, I'm trying to be try good. To sense of yourself. This is. I'm, this I'm is trying so to be strange. good. 
<laughs> Shut up, Alex. <laughs> I, I think we have to understand what's going on, and I think um, I think that's an important aspect of of, of yeah, thinking I, in I martial arts. I agree with that completely because I'm constantly reminding my students that no one's going to stand there and let you hit them. Right. As much as you're trying to hit them, they're trying to hit you, and you've got to be aware that's the case. Right, it's exactly right. And a real quick true story. Um, many years ago, many, many, many years ago, uh, David, you and I belong to a same uh, martial arts uh, discussion forum, and um, you had posted an article that you wrote, and in it you quoted your teacher several times, and uh, your article was, your post was so well written, I had um, sent what I was going to post as a response to you to my Sifu first. And I said, listen, this guy, David Peterson, who I had no idea who you were back then, right? I think like, he wrote this, and I want to put this as my answer, but he wrote it really well, so can you check the grammar and stuff like that? Because, you know, I really, you know, I wanted to have like this really good post to, like, you know, teach you a lesson kind of thing. And 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 the pro, the premise of my post this was this is the dumbest thing I've ever done one of well one of the dumbest things the premise of my post was that you were quoting your teacher who was ripping off Bruce Lee right <laughs> 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 so I I emailed my Sifu the, the post that I'm going to send to you and the whole premise was like you know. Uh, you, you the finger point the moon. I'm like, oh, this guy just watched Into the Dragon too many times. That kind of stuff, you know. And I remember my my, my Siva calling me up on the phone saying, "Step away from the keyboard. You need a lesson in life." <laughs> 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 oh man. So uh, next thing we really want to uh, chat about, and what's really important, is um, the documentary that they're doing about your Sifu. And uh, I think it's uh, a beautiful project. Obviously, it's coming from um, a position of love. And I want to um, know if you could talk about that a little bit. Most definitely. I'd be happy to talk about it. It's been uh, a dream project that we've been working on now approaching four years. It's uh, not something that comes together in a couple of days. It's a, a long-term thing. Uh, it all began in 2012. Uh, John Little out of the blue. Uh, most of your listeners would know who John Little is. He's got the, the best collection of books on Bruce Lee that I think there are out there yeah. over many years. Uh, John approached me out of the blue. He called me up and said, uh, I've been asked by Warner Brothers to shoot a, a small segment for the upcoming 40th anniversary Blu-ray edition of Enter the Dragon. And I've seen some of your material on YouTube and I'd like you to be involved. And I thought about it for about two, three seconds, and I said, yes, I'll be in it. <laughs> there was no way I was going to miss out <laughs> on working with John Little. So we basically, within, uh, I think, in less than a fortnight, we organized flights, and we flew into China, and we met John in a place called Dengfeng, which is the township just outside of the Shaolin Temple in uh, Songshan, in northern China. And we spent approximately two, maybe two and a half days with John and his cameraman that was with him at the time, Richard Allard. And essentially, Warner Brothers had said, we want you to do a, a little mini feature that shows the connection between Bruce Lee and the Wing Chun system. So John had arrived in China with these ideas about what he'd do, but he quickly changed his mind because the more work that he saw us performing for him and the more questions he asked me and I provided answers that he'd not heard before or answers that clarified stories that he heard but wasn't sure about, 
the more he got fascinated by the Wong Tun approach, and it kind of renewed his interest in Wing Chun, which apparently had waned quite a lot. So he ended up shooting some enormous amount of footage on us, and the documentary that he was doing, or the, the feature he was doing, was only going to last about 20 to 25 minutes. But he ended up with hours and hours of footage of me and a couple of my guys who'd gone across with me filming stuff in and around the Shaolin Temple and the surrounding areas. So when he went back to Canada, his home, home place, and started putting it together, uh, after shooting other material in Guangzhou, in southern China, and in Hong Kong, and a few other bits and pieces, he whittled it down to the 20 minutes that Warner Brothers wanted, and we were one piece of that little project. So John's sitting there twiddling his fingers, looking at all this footage that he had left over, and he thought, damn it, this could be another documentary. And he originally had this idea that he might just do an overview of Wing Chun generally, but he was so fascinated by the stories about Wong Sun Lung that we told him and about what we were doing and how we demonstrated the art, he decided he wanted to tell Sifu's story. And that's how it began. That was where the germ began and became something serious. But of course, Warner Brothers wasn't going to come to the party. Because if you say Bruce Lee, they reach into their wallet and say, how much do you want? If you say Wong Sun Lung, they go, Wong who? Right. And so we had to basically start seeking financial assistance from anybody that was willing to help us. And four years down the track, by scraping and, and stealing and borrowing and begging, we managed to now just about complete the documentary. That's amazing. It sounds like a labor of love. If people are still interested in donating, though, um, can you... We I know there was a Facebook page set up. Do you remember it was... What the, yeah, there's a Facebook page. I think it's just called Wong Tseling Film Funding Appeal or something similar. Okay. I'm sure so if you I'm sure search if you're for Wong Tseling, yeah. But there's a, a web page which has been set up for us by Wing Chun Illustrated magazine, courtesy of oh. Eric Illihor. And that's WSLFundingAppeal.com. Excellent. WSLFundingAppeal.com. That, that's and although, excellent. And although most of the work is now pretty much done, uh, John's now tidying up the last few bits and pieces on the final cut of the main documentary uh, we'll still need a little bit of money to help us get across the line to the, so that we can finish it properly and, and then arrange to have it released to the world. So Right, advertising anything, and everything else is going to yeah, cost money, yeah. yeah. So anything that can come in between now and probably at least sometime in October, November is going to help us very, very much. That's, that's amazing. Um, would you mind talking a little bit about your Sifu, like what, what in your mind separates him from the pack? And not that we want to disparage other Sifu. I'm just saying, like, what 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 made Wong Sun Lung so special? I guess it comes down to probably two or three things in particular. The first of them being that, as a young man, he had a very strong sense of justice and fair play, and he didn't take a kind interest in anybody who big noted themselves or pushed people around or acted like a bully. And so from a very young age, he was basically trying to right wrongs and help people out when they came under pressure from people. That led him to get into a number of scrapes as a young man. And he got a bit of a reputation as being someone who would stand up for people. And his interest took him into various kinds of martial art, but he kept being disappointed by different instructors because their attitude was all about telling fairy tales or boosting their own egos with nonsense stories. And so he left more classes than he remained in. And he finally f towards Western boxing. 
and he became fascinated with boxing. And I think through boxing, he developed a real fighter's mentality. And when he finally discovered the Wing Chun art, it appealed to that sense of the reality of boxing in the sense that although boxing could be categorized as a combat sport as opposed to a real combat art, mm -hmm. I know some might argue the point, but Sifu's idea was that as long as there are rules and regulations and, and equipment and so forth, it's a game as opposed to real combat. But having said that, he also felt that boxing was the best martial art that he'd ever come across outside of Wing Chun. And he put that down to three main reasons. One, from day one, boxers are hitting something. Mm. Two, they hit from anywhere. There's no preposturing, no nonsense. And three, they're incredibly fit and they're testing themselves all the time. So that makes them a handful. And he always said the toughest guys he fought in his Baymo days, outside of one or two of the uh, um, occasional martial art guys that he came across, were boxers because they could give him the most trouble because they had the real fighter's spirit. So I think what separates him from the other people of his generation is that most of the others were practicing Wing Chun as a kind of a, a social art, as a pastime, as an interest. He saw it from a fighter's perspective. So he saw the potential of Wing Chun and he wanted to test its potential and his own. And that's what he sort of encouraged him to go out and test his art the way he did. And with that, he brought back feedback to Ipman and they were able to discuss the pros, the cons of various methods and he helped change the thinking of Ipman himself in wow. a number of ways. That, that's amazing. Um, when you traveled to Hong Kong for the first time, now you had, you had already, well you was, if I remember correctly, you knew how to speak Mandarin at that point? At that point, I was, I was able to speak Mandarin, that's correct. I couldn't speak very much more than a couple of words in Cantonese. So but we could communicate in Mandarin because he spoke Mandarin. Oh, he, he spoke himself. Mandarin. Yeah, he taught himself by listening to the uh, popular songs of a famous singer of that era called Teresa Deng, Deng Li Jun. Oh, yeah. Jackie Chan's old ex. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. That's and, how a lot uh, of Hong Kong Chinese himself. learn. Yeah, a lot of Hong yeah. Kong Chinese learn Mandarin through uh, karaoke. <laughs> it's very funny. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, and then gradually, over the years, I started to pick up more and more Cantonese. So he became confident enough to start speaking to me more in Cantonese, knowing that if we couldn't understand each other that way, we could always write it down, because I read and write Chinese too. Well, now you're just showing off, David. Uh, <laughs> you asked the question. <laughs> Well, you know, we have a we have a good time here on the podcast because Alex likes you know I knows that I can barely read and write English, let alone Chinese. So it's uh, it's it's a sore point for us, David. It's a sore point. Uh, David, um, I, I have a, a quick question for you, just because because I also study Cantonese. Um, uh, nowadays, there are a lot of resources, books, and videos on YouTube and whatnot. How how did you do it um, back in the '80s? Because Cantonese is is not as accessible in terms of learning materials as Mandarin is. Um, just curious yeah. how you were able to do it uh, back in those days. Largely by two methods. One was to watch a lot of Chinese movies mm -hmm. out of Hong Kong. And the other was to try to converse as much as possible using the limited Cantonese I had. Right. And then there was always the third backup that if we couldn't say it, we could write it. And then we could exchange the pronunciation. I see. And Sifu used to like to try and learn English. And so he would sit down with me and he'd show me words in English and say, how do you say that? 
So I'd say, all right, this is how it is in English. How do you say it in Cantonese? And right. we swap. And so we helped each other. Oh, wow. wow. That's sweet. That's nice. So we had a lot of fun just exchanging because he was fascinated with language and liked to play with words from all different languages as he traveled around. And I've always been fascinated with languages, uh, obviously particularly the Asian languages. So him and I had a lot of things that were actually common interests where we really could talk for hours about, and that was one of the main ones. Wow. Wow, that's uh, amazing. Did, did, uh, just out of curiosity, because um, you know I think a lot of people are interested in – uh, Wong Xiaolong also because he was uh, Bruce Lee Siheng and, and had, had taught Bruce quite a bit. Um, is there any, because uh, I'm sure you've heard many, but is there any one particular story um, that your Sifu may have told you uh, in regards to Bruce Lee or his relationship with Bruce Lee? Whether It, it doesn't even have to be directly martial arts really. It could be something funny or lighthearted or interesting. Is there any, is there any one story or anecdote your Sifu may have taught you that maybe stands out or maybe people haven't heard yet or something that's uh -huh. kind of a little off the beaten path well the one that they've probably heard is the one that is uh about bruce lee running to the house before all the other classmates and waiting outside the front door and telling everyone that people was uh, he was sick or he was right. out or he was busy <laughs> right, right, right. so that so that bruce could get the the private training that he was always seeking <laughs> but the other the other one that pops into my mind at the moment is that Siva was always very proud to tell what he always declared was bruce lee's favorite dirty joke Okay. And once he would, once he had a few glasses of wine, he would think that his English had improved a lot, and he would try to tell that joke in English. <laughs> Let's hear it, David. Uh, <laughs> Let's I'll, hear I'll, it. I'll, I'll try to keep it clean. <laughs> no need. Uh, no, no, no need. We're keeping it clean for you. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can uh, keep it brief as well, because it can be. I can exaggerate it and make it drag out. Actually, there was a young woman who was very in love with her soon-to-be husband and her husband was a pilot who flew internationally and she was very very much in love with him and she was terribly worried that he might have an accident flying so she begged him can you please stop flying can you take up another profession maybe work behind a desk because i don't want anything to happen to you so her husband promised her, her fiance at the time promised her yeah all right i promised that there would just be one more flight and after that flight i'll give up the profession and I'll take up something else. And sure enough, as, as fate would have it, on his last flight, his planned last flight, there was an accident. There was a bit of a rough crash landing and he wasn't killed, but he lost one of the feet on his uh, on his leg. He lost his right foot, his left foot. Uh, Seaborn never specified. Apparently Bruce never specified, but he lost, <laughs> he lost one foot. But he survived and they got married and, and they were very happy and went off on their honeymoon and had a wonderful time. And when they returned, of course, as young brides often do, they return to see their mother. And mother wants to know, is everything okay? Is he a good guy? Uh, how is the honeymoon? Is the sex good? Blah, 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 all the usual questions. So in the process, the woman was saying, oh, mother, he's wonderful. I love him so much. He's the perfect gentleman. He does everything that I could ever imagine that I'd want him to do. He takes excellent care of me. There's just one thing. There's just one problem. And the mother said, what's that? He said, well, mom, he's only got one foot. And the mother returned with the answer, that's okay, daughter. Your father only had six inches and we were happy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and man. Sipo used to swear black and blue that he got that joke from Bruce Lee. That's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's great. Yeah, that was not in the documentary. <laughs> well, That's I'm great. I'm Irish, so I'm you know I'm impressed with the six inches, but I'm just. <laughs> <laughs> what was um? If you don't mind me asking, what was uh, your seafood school like? Like when you first went there for the first time, you know, walking mm. into a strange environment. I don't know. Did you have much contact with with um, your Sifu before visiting Hong Kong? And like, um, what, what was the training like? And what was he like? And I'm 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 really digging on that. That's like I love the way schools are set up. And yeah. Oh, when when I first arrived, it was in uh, the end of 1983. It was late <laughs> November 1983, and I'd already written a letter to him because one of my own students at that time about six months earlier had had been able to go across so I'd written a letter in Chinese to him to introduce my student and he already therefore knew of me so when he was told that I was on my way over he was expecting to meet me and so when I came in the door I was warmly greeted by everybody the school was on the uh, ninth floor of a very large uh, I guess you'd call it a tenement building on Nathan Road that was the I think that was the fourth location that Seafood had at a school since he opened his first school in the end of 1969, early 1970. And you had to go up a lift to about one floor below because the lift stopped every two floors. So you'd either go to the one below or the one above. And then you'd have to get out and walk up the staircase to his level. And as is typical of that time, there were rubbish bags and stacks of newspapers and cat piss everywhere and it's just not very pleasant place to walk into and you wondered if you're in this in the right place but when you finally walked in the door it wasn't a huge place but it just was like an old boxing gym it had that smell of people working out and it was a little bit grimy a little bit grubby but it was it was a place of business people went there to train and there was a TV in one corner and it was always on and it was a, either the news was on or the cartoons were on or whatever. And it, when people got tired and they needed a break, they'd stare at the, at the TV or they'd stare out the window <laughs> and then they'd go back to training. And on my first night, we basically just talked. I, I didn't hang around. I just got off the plane with my then wife and we weren't hanging around. And people said, oh, I'll come back uh, in a couple of days and we'll get started because it, it, he didn't train every day of the week. And I was on my way into China as well, so it wasn't going to be much training before I went to China. He said, we can get serious about it when you come back from China, because I was going there for a quick visit to uh, visit relatives at the time. So in any case, on my first night where I actually started training, I arrived in Hong Kong with something like nine or ten years of training in martial arts, so I thought, and therefore I assumed I had some kind of skill people with six months training were throwing me from one side of the building to the other <laughs> and I, I, I was ready to go home and crawl into a box and stay there right it was a very humiliating and, and uh uh embarrassing situation but he was really cool about it because he said obviously you've been led astray you've been lied to and you've had a lot of your valuable time wasted let's make sure that doesn't happen again and i'll never forget one thing that he said to me on that very first night he was just off the plane from Australia, relatively nobody in martial arts at that time, still not really, I'm just another guy who does the stuff. And he was him, a living legend that everybody knew about, you know, Bruce, his elder brother in Wing Chun, Yip Man's top fighting student, blah, blah, blah. And he said to me, if you can show me a better way of doing what I'm doing now, I want to learn from you. And in that mm -hmm. moment he said that, I knew I'd found the right teacher. 
that he was a guy that didn't stand on ceremony. He didn't have a big ego. He was willing to learn from anybody who could show him something that was better. That's that's, that's amazing. Yeah, it was a great moment, and I've never forgotten that. That's that's incredible. Like, um, when you first started training with him, like, again, I know none of this, so was it something like... Oh, let's jump right in with uh, sparring or chisau. Or did he say, "Okay, let me work on your forms first? Uh, like, what was um, what was his primary? What was his first thing that he wanted to fix? First thing he wanted to fix was my basic stance and my first form, my sitting tail form. He, he already knew, and he was quite aware that I'd done a little bit of chisau and other things before. But he thought that there wasn't a lot of value in just getting smashed across the room because my chisel wasn't up to scratch. <laughs> right, right. So, so he said, let's work on a couple of basic things first and make sure that you're doing your forms as accurately as you can and got your footwork as accurate as you can. And therefore, that will then enhance everything else that we do from that point onwards. And that was what we did. That's, that's fantastic. Matter of fact, you, you mentioned footwork. That's the first thing that... Um... My Sifu worked on me with um, my uh, my Kundo Sifu. Um, first time we had met, I was doing JKD for a while, and I had uh, flown him in to do a seminar. And the, literally after he beat me up with Chi Sao, which is another story, because I like a schmuck thought I knew Chi Sao, but um, he said to me that you know the biggest problem I had was my stance and my and my footwork. And uh, the problem with my footwork was that I would, my steps were too big. That I need to make my steps smaller. And um, it led it led me down a uh, what I was afraid was going to be a rabbit hole because I went into this hole like I I have to know everything I could possibly know about footwork, you know. Mm. And it became a passion of mine. Um, how do you guys teach footwork? Do you guys uh, emphasize it? Do you or and I know a lot of people have the attitude of well, if you can walk across the room, then you have enough footwork for a fight, which. You know, I guess it's I guess it's a valid opinion, but um, what do you guys think about footwork and the, the training of it? Well, in our in our lineage, footwork is is the key to everything else because it's like a car. If you got a Ferrari but it has no wheels, it's not going to go very fast. <laughs> so we work on footwork from day one, and and there are I have this idea that there are five key things that every beginner must learn in the first lesson. And the very first one is to make the basic training stance, the Yiji Kimilma, because that stance is the basis of all the footwork in Wing Chun, as we do it at least anyway. Then we go through the basic punch, and then we do footwork for moving forward for attack, because the best way to win a fight is to be the guy who's moving forward. So we start with the aggressive footwork, and then we look at defensive footwork, what we call Tui Ma, or retreating steps, and then the fifth and final part of that is the first part of, or the first section of Sunintel form. Now, if I can get a beginner on the very first lesson to go through those five things, I feel as though I've achieved the right foundation for everything else they're going to do. And of course, the biggest part of that, of those five things, is the footwork. It's the main part of it. So, okay, so I'm, I'm taking notes over here, and I only got four. Stance, punch, footwork. Stance, yeah, stance, punch, uh, forward footwork, or if you if you like, attacking footwork, defensive footwork. Oh, okay, and form. And and the first section in particular, not the whole form, right. but the first section of the form. Excellent, excellent. That's uh, how do you train footwork? If you don't mind me asking, like, just one, if you can give us one drill. 
Uh, well, the most basic thing I can do for a beginner is I'll get them to stand in what some people would call the samgokma, which that means the triangle stance, uh, where one foot, let's say the right foot's in the front and the left foot's at the back, in, in what looks like the classical Wing Chun pose that you see photos of Yip Man and Bruce Lee and so on doing. Uh, of course, we have our ways of tweaking it to suit the way we like to use it. But basically, it's that basic triangle stance. And then we start moving one step at a time. No hands involved, hands on the hips, just stepping the front foot, taking the step. I call the front foot the steering leg, and the back foot is the driving leg. So you step and you push forward. You step and you push forward. And we'll do that up and down the room 10 times, 20 times, 30 times, whatever it takes until the, the new student is starting to get a sense of the smoothness of the of the action and some idea of how to connect to the floor then we'll add the punches to it because we'll have already have done the punch standing still so i'll start with a single punch so that step and do one punch and if they're really new to martial arts you do the step first and then standing still you add the punch then you take one step then you add the punch and eventually after a minute or two usually the natural coordination factor starts to kick in and they start to be able to perform the punch with the step, which is the goal. Once they can do one step, then we add two punches, but we usually do it so that you have opposite hands and feet. Because as you would be very aware, and Alex certainly aware, in Wing Chun, the key, or again, from the Wong Chun and Wing Chun perspective, one of the key concepts is Chiu Ying, being square on, being front on to the opponent. So to ensure that the student develops that habit straight away, if the right foot's in front, we have the left hand in front. So it forces the body to stay square on. Hmm. So every time you do the two punches, you'll do the right hand and the left hand. So you've got right foot, left hand, right foot, left hand. You're always keeping the hips and shoulders square. Once they can do that reasonably comfortably, and we might only work on it a few minutes, then we'll let them do multiple steps. So instead of one step at a time, we'll make it that they try to do three connected steps. So step, step, step. And while they're doing the three connected steps, just continuously punching. They've already proven that they can do two punches per step previously. So you say, all right, the goal is to do six punches in three steps. Should be possible. If you can't get six, go for five. If you can't get five, right, go right. for four. Don't count the punches. That's not important. If you want to count something, count the steps. Fix the footwork first. Because I tell them, when you get out of bed in the morning, you stand up, you walk to the bathroom, you do what you've got to do. Then you go back to the bedroom. You may sit down and check your phone. Then you'll stand up, you'll get dressed, you'll walk downstairs or walk into the kitchen and sit down and eat. When you're finished eating, you walk to the car and you sit down and you drive to work. Your legs don't do much. Your hands open doors, pick up a pen, use the phone, wipe your face, comb your hair. You use your hands all day, but you don't use your feet for all that much. So the feet need more work because they're naturally going to be lazier and less coordinated. So That's always really interesting. work feet. Always work feet before hands because their hands can be a distraction rather than a, an, 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 what's the right word, rather than a help. So feet first, add the hands later because their hands will always develop faster because you use them more than you use your feet. Well, that's, that's, 
That's that's really awesome. That's more notes I'm taking. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> now I know what you're going to be teaching next week in your class. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, uh, thank thank God for you. Thank God for you guys. Otherwise, I'd have nothing to teach. You know. So <laughs> I, I, I tell Alex that uh, for for years I taught off his how-to channel. You know, like how to Wing Chun. First lesson. Oh, okay, guys. This is what we're working on tonight. You know? <laughs> JDD class right out of the Taoji Kundo. You know. Alex, what about you, brother? What, what's the uh, what's your outlook on footwork? Um, well, I mean, actually, it was really great to hear um, to hear what David had to say. It's very very similar to how we do it. I think that footwork is uh, not emphasized enough in the greater Wing Chun world, unfortunately. That's why some people uh, mistakenly believe Wing Chun doesn't have any footwork, and I think that may be the fault of either the footwork traditionally being taught a little bit later or just Sifu's not emphasizing it for some reason. Be before I did Wing Chun, um, or before I, I started learning Langting Wing Chun, I actually... I I trained in Seattle under students who had learned um, from James DeMille and Jesse Glover and Ed Hart. So I did non-classical Kung Fu or non-classical Wing Chun, whatever you want to call it, in the Seattle area for about almost four years before I came to WT. And uh, that was obviously based on what Bruce Lee taught in his early Seattle years. And footwork was a huge deal. I, I, I mean, and, and I think that that also had a great influence on how I later looked um, at teaching uh, when when I started, because uh, I, I thought it was really great that, that we had emphasized footwork. I had a Taekwondo background when I was a little kid, and we did a lot of kicks, but I don't feel that we actually did a lot of footwork in terms of how do you move in specific ways to adapt to your opponent. It was like just about doing a bunch of kicks, and it wasn't until I did the, the non-classical Wing Chun that I was like, oh, wow, like these these footwork ideas actually give me an advantage over somebody who's, who's really trying to punch me in the face. So I, I thought that that was a, um, that's probably one of the reasons why um, uh, that influenced how I, I, I taught. And it's also one of the reasons I think why I was always really interested in, in Wong Sun Leung's uh, Wing Chun because um, Jesse Glover, which I had all of his books, which he used to print in his basement. He used to spiral bind, bind them himself. <laughs> and like, so you would, you'd send him a check and then you'd get this like spiral bound book directly from Jesse Glover, which he had made for you. And I remember one time I had like an overpayment on like $1.26. I, I ordered like three of his books and he wrote me a check for the $1.26 I had overpaid. And I just remember I had like a check from Jesse Glover for, uh, there was no way I was going to cash that check. So that check to this day is, is on my wall. And, That's and awesome. I just remember Jesse Glover talking about how much Bruce, um, talked about Wong Sun and, and his influence. And even, I think there was a book, where um, Jesse Glover's brother, I think it was his brother, Mike Lee, I think he went to Hong Kong and he trained in Wong Sun Leung's school and there were like a bunch of photos um, from, he was one of Jesse Glover's students training at Wong Sun Leung's school and I just thought that was like the coolest thing yeah. in the world. Yeah, uh, that and, was actually um, John Ladulski who's just passed away. Oh, right, 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 yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, there's such an unfortunate just, thing. Yeah, it was the second book. I remember it's got lots of pictures of, of Sifu in his old school in Jim Sajoy. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, and, and, and that's the stuff that I would spend, you know, when, when I was supposed to be reading stuff for school, I would have my school textbook in front and then I would have like Jesse Glover's <laughs> book behind <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, see, I had Playboy, Alex. Maybe you should have. <laughs> 
yeah, well, I, yeah, I was just such a hopeless uh, Wing Chun geek through my teen years, and and it clearly influenced what I do for a living these days. But um, and and by the way, uh, I I got um, I got your book, uh, David, just uh, about three four weeks ago, and, and and I've already I've already gone through it twice. <laughs> so uh, really really amazing, and uh, um, uh, it's just I'm very appreciative of anybody who really takes the time to uh, um, to put their their food or any work like you know out there in a way that's really comprehensive and I, I really wish more um, not just within Wing Chun I wish more martial artists especially Chinese martial artists would do that because I think Chinese Kung Fu in general uh, needs to be consolidated and, and researched and put out there because so much of it is kind of going by the wayside um, every year another Sifu passes away um, you know how much is lost so I, I'm, I'm all for these great conservation um, efforts and I, I think it's really great what you did and I really hope more more people in the arts do it I really appreciate your, your comments. Thank you. I, I, I enjoyed the process, and, and I'm very proud of what we've managed to make. And again, Eric Lilly at Wing Chun Illustrated, he was right there supporting me all the way through. And we, we tried to raise the benchmark as high as we could. We wanted to make something very special. And I think we've managed to do something that's, that's I'm quite proud of anyway. Oh, you should be. It's, it's an incredible book. I, uh, I absolutely love it. Um, when, it when it comes to Jeet Kune Do, with footwork, at least how I teach it, is um, a lot of people that come to JKD, you know, are either Bruce Lee fans or fans of what they think Jeet Kune Do is. And uh, one of the problems with Jeet Kune Do right now is that uh, there's a whole bunch of repeated bad information. And so if you go to most Jeet Kune Do websites or Jeet Kune Do books or things to that effect and you look up footwork, you'll see a, a list of footwork. There's, you know, step and slide, push shuffle, slide step. And I think people look at that and say, okay, well, this is Jeet Kune Do footwork. This is how I'm allowed to move. I, I can take a step and then slide up. I can push shuffle. I could, without giving thought to why we, why certain things are done. It's almost as if like, if you wanted to study uh, how to run in football, they took the greatest running back in the world, filmed it, and said, okay, look, he did this first and that, and kind of listed out the steps without understanding why certain things are done. So w how I look at uh, footwork in Jeet Kune Do is I look at footwork as the start of the, the introduction of strategy. Sure, when, first people, when people first start, we teach, uh, you know, the stance, center line and a punch like that's that's my big three okay stance center line punch and then footwork all within the first lesson and yeah we'll go through a step and slide a slide step a push shuffle things to that effect but then very quickly i i like to emphasize strategy and tactics and i'll i'll i think people need to come to terms with the idea of when it comes to footwork there's either footwork can either be proactive or reactive you know, you're either reacting to what your opponent's doing or you're being proactive and, and, and trying to control your opponent. And and football and footwork is the key to that. We have to understand, at least, and again, how I do Jeet Kune Do. I can't speak for everybody else, so cut the hate mail. I don't read it anyway. How, <laughs> you know, how I do Jeet Kune Do, I look at footwork as very much key to strategy. And 
I look to see, like, when I when I step forward, what does my opponent do? If I step forward, does he drop his hands? Does he step back? Does he step in? How could I use that? Me stepping forward and then shuffling back real quick, does it draw him in? These are things that, are, this is like bits of information that happens in a nanosecond that, you need to process and use, and and that's being proactive in footwork. Because if you, when, when it comes to footwork, again, and how I do in Jeet Kune Do, when it comes to footwork, somebody's in control. So if you're not in control, the other guy is. You know, remember like what my Sifu said to me was like, you know. Y- what you're trying to do to him, he's trying to do to you. So if you give up any aspect of a fight, that means he's in, he's in control of it. And when it comes to footwork, you know, that's more true than anything else. You know, if you, if you don't have footwork, if you don't have center line, you're losing the fight. So when I, when I, when I teach footwork, I'm always emphasizing that, you know, of course, structure and balance. And I know all the things I missed out on the podcast people are going to yell at me about. But... Think, you have to think strategy. You have to think, I step forward, and then to the right, what happens? Yeah, no, and of course a fight happens in a second, and I get all that. But that's that's where I teach strategy and tactics. Well, I should say, that's where I introduce strategy and tactics, is uh, through footwork. I don't want footwork to be mechanical. I want footwork to be alive, to understand that there's something something there more than just a list of things you can do. And I think that's one of the misconceptions in Jeet Kune Do. Thus, it's a case of once you understand the basics of the footwork, you've got to test it. So we do a lot of interactive drills with people so that they put you under pressure. And an essential thing that people got to remember that Ip Man was barely five foot five. Wong Sun Lung was barely five foot six. Yet they fought people much bigger than themselves. What was their secret? It comes down to one simple thing, footwork. Right. My teacher was so mobile that every time you thought you had him, and there were moments where you thought, I've got him at last, he's suddenly not there. He would take your line, he would send you off in a different direction, all because of his footwork. And the secret to all of that is in the Yiji Kimilma. The basic training stance contains every direction of footwork that you're ever going to do without taking a step. And I always tell my guys, you all know in Into the Dragon, the famous line when Bruce Lee said, my style, you can call it the art of fighting without fighting. If I tell them our, our style, our stance, our Yijikimiyama is the art of stepping without stepping. <laughs> if you understand that stance, you've got all the footwork you ever need to know. It's already there. Wow. That's, that's intriguing. Is that, is that your next book, I hope? <laughs> well, the art of stepping well, without stepping. The art of stepping without stepping. I'm well, gonna go to Weight Watchers and make it the art of eating without eating. <laughs> uh, I'm promised at the moment no more books, at least for the time being. <laughs> my wife, my wife said, no more documentaries, no more books. <laughs> well, I'm hoping that the the a new video series is in your future. I, uh, uh, you, you never know. It's possible. Well, I, I, I said I remember sending you a message on Facebook. You had done um, some short YouTube videos with uh, one of your students. I'm drawing a blank on his name. Uh, probably Morton. Yes, in yes, right. Yes. Those are fantastic. Those well, are Morton, fantastic. Morton's a great practitioner to begin with. So interacting with him is going to bring out the best in both of us every time. Right, because you know I'm a firm believer that um, kung fu 
Wing Chun is not is not learned in the forms; it's learned in the drills. And right. and um, when you you broke down some drills, and I was like, oh man, this is what we need. We need this done in a in a, in a full length. And you smacked me down on that one. <laughs> well. No, I, I get you. Smack you down. I'm only kidding. <laughs> but basically, as I think I've probably told you, if I put all my drills down on a DVD or whatever, right, right, I become redundant. Nobody right. needs me anymore. Right. <laughs> exactly right. Sure, I totally get it. But you know, if you look at me, I need someone to rip off, and I already went through all of Alex's. <laughs> Hello. Uh, uh, David, I, David, I had a question for you. Um, now that it's been a number of years since since your Sifu's untimely passing, I mean, what what mm-hmm. do you think is the general vibe within the Wong Sun community? Because, uh, you know, after after Grandmaster Yip Man passed away, um, you know, the Wing Chun community was was quite fragmented, and and um, I think to a certain degree, it's it still is. I mean, there there are pockets of people who kind of can get along with each other, but um, I, I I know you know without getting into any kind Kind of politics or anything like that um is the general vibe that most of the different families that kind of stem from Wong Sun Lung more or less um are, are agreeable to each other or can get along or or is it essentially now where it's kind of becoming now you have multiple streams that have kind of come out of of the Wong Sun Lung system what's your what's your general take on that and again you don't need to name any names or anything like that I was just yeah, curious I, what you thought the vibe was I, I certainly won't name names because I'm on pretty good terms with most of them so I'd like to keep it that way sure sure but of of the original students of which I consider myself one of those group um, generally speaking we can all sit in a room together and not kill each other <laughs> generally. <laughs> generally we don't always we don't always see eye to eye on everything because everyone has their own take on things but by and large we're all teaching the same things we're using the same concepts we may explain it a little bit differently or do our own personal minor differences in application but generally speaking amongst the original students things are, are not too bad by and large um, not it's not a hundred percent everybody's happy but right. like you said when Ipman passed away things were a bit splintered something quite similar happened in our camp I won't go into specifics but there were basically two camps of thinking and that lasted for quite some time but in recent years particularly with our uh, big gathering we had in 2014 a lot of that was put aside and people are starting to come back together and and talk to each other again and and consider each other's opinions a little bit more because we realize now that we're the we're the the keepers of a legacy and and once we're gone if we've done a crappy job of looking after it and and passing it on then there's nothing to pass on so i think we're all getting very very aware of our more mortality uh, just in the last couple of days i've lost one of my wing chun brothers um, i found out early this morning that i lost a, a dear friend who was one of several students for about eight or nine years in hong kong a fellow by the name of tom conba in the uk um, we've lost a lot of our family in the last few years and and we're not getting younger i'm about to turn 60. Uh, people like gary lamb and one gum leong are, all, are getting on uh, and we've lost a few of our family over the last two or three years uh, so some of Sifu's best students like uh, Sifu Tommy Yun, uh, he passed away about four or five years ago, a, a wonderful practitioner and a great representative of the art. So I feel very strongly that it's important to try to bind the group together. The problem is, can the second generation keep that going? Not a shot. Because, yeah. <laughs> I'm only kidding. 
It's, yeah, well, in, a, it's, in some regards, yes. And, and the biggest danger to that is that there's now a fringe group of people who think they're part of the Wong Sun Women family by default because they knew someone who knew someone who knew him. Yeah. Or they attended a seminar once or read a magazine article and they're proclaiming themselves as members of the family and teaching what it amounts to absolute nonsense compared to what the real message of Mycifa was. That's the biggest danger to keeping us as a, a solid group. Hmm. And that's what the documentary has been made. One of the reasons it promoted the documentary was to get the stories from as many of the guys who were willing to get involved as possible so that we can document true account of Sifu and his art before there's no one around to say what that was. Right. Sure. Do, do you feel that uh, the conservation uh, efforts is largely a Western thing? Because, uh, um, you know, I, I've my own projects I've worked on in Hong Kong, and, and, and it seems that a lot of the, and this is not to disparage the Chinese, but a lot of the Chinese students of great Sifus don't seem particularly um, concerned about documenting things, about uh, having some kind of archive or whatever. It seems to be oftentimes the Westerners come in and say, hey, wait, how come no one is recording this? How come no one is, yeah. is, 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 is you know, I mean, if you look at one of the the, the most amazing uh, um, minds in in Hong Kong cinemas, Bay Logan, and, and he's gone to great efforts to make sure that all that old stuff from Golden Harvest didn't just get thrown in the rubbish bin. And uh, mm. if you look at it, you, you see this kind of theme popping up that, that there always seems to be some Westerner who's kind of pressing the idea that um, you know, if you guys don't take care of this, I mean, I I, I did an interview with Sifu Roland Tong earlier this year, and and I mean, the man has so much much uh, um, amazing information and stories and things like that. And I'm wondering, and how come I haven't heard much about this? And, and I'm a Wing Chun geek, and, and it seemed that nobody around him was really taking any great effort to to write any of this stuff down there. And he's getting on there in age as well. And and I think that, um, you know, is, is that something that you, you see as kind of almost a more Western undertaking? It seems to be that way. Even my own Zifo, when he passed away, they had to come to me for a photograph to use for the, for the funeral. And most people were complaining that I had a book of photographs over years of my interaction with my Sifu and they didn't have any. And I think it's because in Hong Kong it's sort of like, oh, he's always going to be there, it doesn't matter. And if you go back a few earlier years, of course, having a camera was something of a luxury. Sure. Not like today where everybody's phone's got a camera. Right. So a lot of people just took for granted that Sifu was always going to be there and they didn't take photos. Whereas I was a visitor who was able to only be there for short amounts of time one month, two months at a time or less. And so I wanted to make sure I had memories. And therefore myself and uh, my senior Philip Bayer and several others, we've probably got much more documentation on Seafall over the years than most of the guys in Hong Kong. I've had some of my senior brothers almost cry and say, I don't have any pictures of me with Seafall. I've got nothing to show that I was with him. And it's sad. Yeah, so it I, sad. Guess, I guess that kind of, um, Unconsciously, I've been trying to maintain something of a record or an archive of of the the system and the man, and and I guess it's led to where I am now. But being the person who writes the articles and prints a couple of books and makes a couple of DVDs, and now the documentary, I guess I'm doing what I can, my own very small effort to try to preserve something because there's not a lot there. Even Sifu didn't have a lot of stuff that he could share with us because they move a lot in Hong Kong because the rents keep changing. And every time they move house, things get lost. And Sifu had this habit of giving things away. And so at the time of his death, um, people were saying, oh, we don't have any photos. 
And here I was with a, an album in my bag that I brought across to Hong Kong. And it was like, oh, my God, you've got so many photos. So I felt sad for them and very fortunate that I at least had something that I could use as a memento of the time. Sure. And that's why I'm trying to preserve all through the book and through the documentary now. I, I was having a talk with Roland Tom myself just a little while ago, and he even floated the idea of, of writing a book. And I said to him, you must do it. It's something that must be done. Him and both, uh, both him and Andrew Ma have both said that they'd like to get their memoirs written. And I said, well, what are you waiting for? Right. I'm trying to push them. Right. Yeah. Because uh, there's so few of the original students of Yipman left now to tell their stories. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, I, um, with my Sifu, uh, Tom Kagan, my, my Wing Chun Sifu, you know, he had uh, he was here on Staten Island, and I don't know if you're aware, but we had a, a really bad hurricane here a while ago, Hurricane Sandy. Mm. And almost all of his mementos that he had with Moyat were wiped out in Hurricane Sandy. You know, so um, my seafood, every, like his, part of his day was um, he would take Moyat to lunch every day because where he worked was right near Moyat's, where Moyat's school was. And every day, like almost every day, Moyat would take a napkin and, you know, he, you know, he was an artist, so he would draw or they would be talking something about the form and he would draw the whole form out on a napkin. You know, or something to that effect, and give it to my Zifu. And I said, well, can I have that? Can I have that? Can I have that? And much of that was wiped out in uh, Hurricane Sandy. You know, I have some of it, actually. I have a... He uh, recently gave me a whole bag full of these napkins that weren't destroyed. I'm going to scan them in and put them up on Facebook one day. Yeah. And that's a tragedy that he lost all that. Really yeah, it sad. really is, because it's, you know, it's just, it's irreplaceable. It's, uh, mm. it's, uh, it's something that, um, it's sad. Anyway, uh, Sean, did we have some uh, questions from the listeners? We do, actually. We have a, a few questions here. We can bang right through them. Um, young Mr. Ian Hunter wants to know, what's the difference between Wing Chun Chi Sao and Jeet Kune Do Chi Sao? So, uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not qualified to answer half that question. I'll give my quick little, my, my quick little thoughts on that. In most cases, in 99% of the cases, Ji Kundo Chi Sao is Wing Chun Chi Sao done incorrectly. <laughs> that's, that's, Ji Kundo Sifus have this thing in their head that they need to fix Wing Chun. Wing Chun's fine. You don't need to fix it. Just do it right and you'll be fine. Now, I will say, and sometimes I kind of like that um, in, in JKD we use uh, more broken rhythm. Uh, fainting and fakes than is generally taught in Wing Chun, and you'll see that more, I think, in um, in, in Chi Sao. But I, the idea to me of some of these JKD guys doing Chi Sao with boxing gloves and mouthpieces, to you know, it borders on the ridiculous. And hey, just go spar. You know, Chi Sao serves a purpose. And if you're going to change Chi Sao, you're changing the purpose of the drill. So. To me, there's no such thing as JKD Chi Sao. Yeah, because Bruce Lee took a picture of himself doing Chi Sao in right lead. Doesn't mean he changed the concept of Chi Sao. It means he took a picture of him in right lead doing Chi Sao. That in the way I do Chi Sao is 
there is no lead. It could, you could be standing with your right leg forward or your left leg forward or no leg forward. You know, it's your structure that's most important. And if and if you sit there and say, okay, no, I'm only going to do my chi sao and right lead because Bruce Lee did JKD in his right lead, you're doing chi sao incorrectly. So one of the things I find as a JKD person frustrating is when I hear, oh, can you teach me a JKD method of using the mukyang zhang? There is no JKD method of using the mukyang zhang. There's an incorrect way of doing mukyang zhang, and it's called the JKD method. But if you're going to learn mukyang zhang, or the zhang, learn, go to a Wing Chun school and learn how to use the zhang. If you want to learn qi sao, go to a Wing Chun school and learn qi sao. Don't try and fix qi sao. Don't try and fix Wing Chun. Wing Chun's fine without JKD people trying to fix it. And this is coming from a guy who loves Jeet Kune Do. I love Bruce Lee. I'm not insulting JKD people. Well, yeah, maybe a little. But it, the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, stop being a moron. Stop trying to fix other people's arts. And, and, and so that's, that's my opinion when it comes to Wing Chun Chi Sao and JKD Chi Sao. Is there's Chi Sao and it is incorrect Chi Sao. And JKD Chi Sao is usually the incorrect one. Anyway, that's my opinion. Right. So next question. <laughs> um, Tofa Maori wrote um, on the Jong, speaking of the Jong, should the arms be parallel or offset, and why? Let's talk about the top arms, I assume. Yeah, the top arms, correct. Uh, well, I would love to hear. I, I know what my <laughs> take is on it, but I, I'm not interested in listening to myself talk. I would love to hear what David has to say about this. All right. Well, from, from our lineage perspective, we always want the arms to be absolutely level or as close to level as we can because you're rarely going to fight someone who's higher on one side of their body than the other. So the argument that, oh, one side's for training against tall people and the other one's for training against short people is absolute nonsense. Right. right? <laughs> if, if the arms are as close to level as possible, then you're not advantaging or disadvantaging one side over the other. You're training evenly, and that's the whole point to practice on one level and then adjust yourself when you face the real situation. So for us, when we stand in our stance, the correct height of the dummy is so that the arms, the upper arms, are as level as possible and line up approximately at the level of your nipples. If that's about right, then your dummy is right for practice. One of the reasons why most dummies that are made with the alternating heights is because that's the easy way to make a dummy. It doesn't take the hard work and effort to correct it by using the right method of carpentry. Any moron can put two holes in the dummy and stick an arm in them. To cut the dummy correctly is an art form, and not everybody can do it. Simple as that. Yeah, it's uh, that, that's how I was taught as well, is that it should be uh, level. And just I learned that uh, the offset arms almost like uh, denote a lead, as if the person had a lead on you, like a, a right lead or left lead. And um, that yeah, I don't just... think that much thought process went into it. I agree with David. I think it was just like some of they're just lazy, and and in order to get <laughs> the arms from hitting each other, you just put one on top of the other instead of using the offset, which requires a little bit more work. And I think people look into these things like, oh, there must be a real reason why one arm was higher than the other because of this and this. And I think people are just justifying the fact that somebody was a lazy carpenter, and, and I don't think it really has much more to do than that. But people can always say no, there has because it's 
kung fu because it's coming. This is the dummy my sifu uses. There has to be some ultra mystical, super secret reason why it's that way. When when the answer might be a little that bit more. That the sifu was a dummy. <laughs> no, that the carpenter was a dummy, and he's just trying to justify that he got a shitty dummy in his school. <laughs> and has to give some kind of reason for it, right? You too can have a dummy for ninety nine, ninety five. Yeah. I think the biggest problem there is the fact that, that without going to a great deal of time, because I know we don't have a great deal of time, the dummy, too many people look at it as a black and white object when really there are thousands of shades of grey. And both arms can represent left or right, can be inside, can be outside. There's no one thing that those arms are doing. And it's what you do in your head and how you think as you play the dummy that changes the way you use the techniques. Because remember, the overriding thing between a dummy and a real person the dummy can't move right you have to move around the dummy you have to move in place of the dummy because the dummy can't move now if you then start messing with the heights of the arms and changing things you're going to be completely out of balance on one side compared to the other side so instead of changing the level of the arms of the dummy change the way you think and the way you approach training on the dummy then you'll get more out of it yeah, you know, and it just even when people outside of Wing Chun, the dummy has become such a fascination. You know, probably you know for Jackie because of Jackie Chan movies and things to that effect. I mean, I can't tell you the amount of people that have contacted me. I can only imagine for you two guys, people that came to me and want to learn the dummy. Mm. You know, especially like I've had JKD people because they know I have a Wing Chun background. They'll say, "Oh, can I come there and just train the dummy with you?" I'm like, why? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. You know, yeah. but they, they want to learn. They want to learn the the dummy form. They want to learn the jong form, but they don't want to learn. I've had the same people come in. Oh, can, can I learn the dummy? I say, sure. After you've learned everything else. Right. right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, in my buffet line. Right. In my lineage, the dummy does is is taught after beauty. You know, yeah, I mean, so in ours it's the other way around, but that's bizarre. yeah, so neither here nor there. It's just a different approach, right? You know, so it's funny. So I'm like, you know, it took me a long time to learn a dummy. I'm not just teaching it to you for. Mm. This um, is also why I don't answer the phone at my school. I haven't right. done so for years. <laughs> <laughs> I put people in charge of that because they just can't deal with this stuff anymore. Oh, yeah. well, my school is in my basement, so <laughs> I, I have to. And my, and my official phone is in my pocket. <laughs> Um, the last question we have is from Tyler Thompson, and it's, it's actually a really good question for you guys and for me. But I'm not going to listen. I'm not going to answer. Uh, what should be the mindset during Chi Sao? What do you guys think? It's a pretty broad question. <laughs> right, it is a pretty broad question. But you know what? I think. Um, all right, so I'll give a, a quick two seconds on what I think, and I, I think. Oftentimes, people have the wrong mindset when they're doing Chi Sao, that they're worried about getting hit or hitting the other guy as the sole reason for doing it. They're worried about um, they're, they're, not, they're not keeping in mind what the purpose of the drill is. They're not looking for angles. They're not looking to work a specific thing. When, I'll do, when I do Chi Sao, I will often say, I'm going to work this specific thing. I want to work on angling. I want to work on... Um, I, I don't have a really a word for it, but when I do chi sao with my sifu, sometimes I feel like it's as if I reach for a doorknob and the door opened out and I kind of fall forward. He kind of just like ghosts on me, like, and, and I try and I try and work on that that idea of 
of having like, keeping good structure and letting my arms collapse and when I feel a pressure and let you come forward while I take an angle. I go into chi sao with a purpose. I, I don't just go into chi sao to see if I can tag you on the chest more than you tag me on the chest. And so I think I think the for me the thought process in, in chi sao should be understanding that you can relax to let your hands fly forward and work a certain aspect of Wing Chun. It's a Wing Chun drill, learn a, work a certain aspect of Wing Chun, changing angles, footwork, energy, things to that effect, as opposed to just worrying about hitting the other guy more often than he hits you. Sure, yeah. I mean, I think that there always needs to be some kind of focus, you know. I mean, there has to be a purpose to it because it, when it just becomes a wild, disorderly, you know, uh, kind of orgy of people trying to hit each other and then it's like, well, at that point you might as well just fight or spar or put gloves on or try to punch each other in the face. If it's if there's no goal, if there's no overriding practice and it can, it can be aggressive, it can be, you know, um, uh, you could be testing stuff out. It's not to say that it has to be cooperative. There just has to be some kind of sure. reason or line or thought behind it. Uh, otherwise, it, it's it's very unclear what somebody's training. And, and there are different types of chi sao that can be trained and, and you know, th- therefore different kind of mindsets, I suppose, that would apply to different kind of phases or goals within chi sao. But provided that there is some kind of goal to the particular practice you're doing, is if, if, if you are goal-oriented, I think, would say is probably, in my opinion, the most important uh, part of the mindset that you have some kind of reason for doing what you're doing as opposed to just kind of shooting arrows in the dark. It's meant to be an interactive drill where both people get something out of it. It's not about one person smashing the other and dominating all the time. Otherwise, right. what's the point? Just just spar. If you want to fight, fight. You don't need cheese out to do that. Right. It's funny because my article in the next upcoming issue of Wing Chun Illustrated is about that. It's called Cheese Out is not a contest. Oh, awesome. Yeah, so now, anything you want to know about my opinion is probably in that, that article. But basically, it's about training, like Alex just said, different aspects, different approaches within the drill so that we both can get something out of it. And there can be aggressive cheese, there can be soft cheese, there can be targeted exercises. And in, as far as a mindset, keep your mind as clear as you can. You can have a conversation and talk about the weather while you're doing cheese. The more you're distracted, the better, because we're trying to create automatic reflexes, not having to stop and think about what you're doing. So yeah. a calm mind, a, a free mind where you're not trying to plan too far ahead, but just see what happens in front of you and respond to it. You can be the attacker. You might be the defender. There's so much that can happen. So if you think about one thing too much, you're going to miss out on all the rest. Well, you know, something I want to... David brought something up, and it's a, a little bit of a side note. Wing Chun Illustrated Magazine, for any of you folks that don't know, is by far the best magazine dealing with Kung Fu that I've ever seen. Um, you, you look, look them up on Facebook and, uh, and uh, I guess, uh, on their website. It's The magazine is just phenomenal. And uh, both of these gentlemen, I should say all three of us, have a, a vital part of Wing Chun Illustrated Magazine. David has a monthly call a column every issue. Alex is in it all the time, and I have a subscription. <laughs> You're the most important one. <laughs> that gives us reasons because you have a subscription. <laughs> Where out of work if you don't buy the magazine? <laughs> so, I really, folks. I mean, if you're interested in Wing Chun. Um, Absolutely. Wing Chun Illustrated Magazine. I don't buy any other magazine. I don't buy 
you know, Black Belt magazine. I mean, I'm sure they're all great. I just, I, I don't, I stop buying all of that. I only read Wing Chun Illustrated magazine. It's just phenomenal. It's just so all the different lineages are represented in it. It's, um, it's just, it's just so done so professionally. The people there, uh, you know, I had a problem with my app one day, and they just. Uh, you know, I don't even know who the who you know. I, I'm, I'm friends with him on Facebook, but I couldn't even remember his name right now. Eric, Eric Lilly, or most right. likely, so professional to deal with. Yeah. You know, you just send him a message and say, "Hey, I'm having a problem with this," and boom, it's fixed. You know, a couple hours later, and you got all your subscriptions. And if you're into Wing Chun, Wing Chun Illustrated Magazine is the way to go. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Alex, uh, I think it's time to say goodbye to my my friend David Peterson. This is kind of sucks. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, David, we want to thank you talking. so much. <laughs> <laughs> David, this was amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been very cool because up to this point in time, I've only known you guys by writing to you. So this is really nice to be able to actually talk and see each other and and have this conversation. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. And I hope I hope to run into you at some point in in Hong Kong as well. It, uh, it would be great to go out with you in Bay and 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 uh, have some you know really great old stories. And I think they'd be, they'd be really a lot of fun. Yeah, that could be fun. As long as Bay stops talking long enough for you and I to talk too. <laughs> That's the other problem too. Yeah, maybe we should meet together first before we meet up with Bay if we want to get a word in. <laughs> David, do you have any seminars coming up that you want to promote or? Uh, I will be in Rome in September for a couple of days. To I've got a group of students over there, uh, so I'll be meeting up with them. Uh, it's early in September, but I'll put up some more notices about that on my Facebook page at some point. There's a group in uh, in Rome called Omega Wing Chun, and uh, I'll be doing some a weekend of seminars for them coming up soon. Okay. Any plans on coming to America anytime soon? America is a little bit tougher. Um, Long story short, it's not so easy for us as Malaysians to come to America anymore because oh. of worldwide situations. Sure. Uh, and with my wife and myself both being of the Muslim faith, uh, we get a pretty rough time when we come through oh, the airport. So, right, right, right. Well, if you ever do want to come to the States and you need a letter of recommendation from an established <laughs> Wing Chun school in the States, I'll be more than happy to write it for you. So don't worry Thank about that. Thank you so much, Alex. <laughs> oh, I mean, I, it would you be... You're welcome to come to Malaysia anytime. You know, well, you know, uh, being in 150-degree weather at this weight doesn't really work for me. But <laughs> <laughs> got lots of air conditioners. <laughs> well, thank, thank you very much, and um, we'll hope we'll... See you folks next week. All right. Thank you so much, David. And uh, thank you so much, Sean. We'll be, we'll, uh, we'll be up again next week. Last uh, when, ex- Next week is episode, what, 12, right? Right, episode 12. Yeah. Wow, that's almost a whole season right there. Yeah, I think uh, <laughs> at some point we're going to call it a season. And well, that's, that's leave for another conversation. <laughs> All later, right. Later, All folks. Right. Take care. Thanks Bye-bye. again for the opportunity, guys. Bye. Bye-bye. Our pleasure. Bye-bye.